This is an ABC podcast. You're probably pretty familiar with Vladimir Putin by now. Smallish fellow, bald head, scary grin. You know... The guy who smiles like he can only orgasm when a journalist dies. You know, he likes horse riding shirtless. Uh, Or swimming like a dolphin. You know, the Russian president, this guy. uh, Won yesterday's Russian presidential election. He received a whopping 325% of the vote. You're also probably pretty familiar with his reputation. The Russian dictator. Putin's a killer. He's basically an organised crime figure that runs a country. But despite perceptions, he's not actually a Bond villain. He's not actually on a quest for world domination. He's motivated by survival. To stay in power, he needs someone to fight. It's something he learned as he transitioned from being a shadowy spymaster to a beloved president. Today on Russia, if you're listening, the story of why Putin is at war with the West. The story starts with a bus driver. His name is Alexei Kartofelnikov. He lives in the Russian city of Ryazan, about three hours from Moscow. And one evening in 1999, he noticed something suspicious outside his apartment building. It was a car, and part of its licence plate was covered by a sheet of paper. But I went back to look at the rear number plate, too. And sure enough, it was the same. A piece of paper with 62 on it, taped over the end of the registration number. A 62 on a Russian number plate means it's registered in Ryazan, meaning it's a local. But this 62 had been written in texter and attached to the rego plate with sticky tape. Kind of suspicious, right? Well, the next thing Alexei saw was two men carrying sacks from this car into the basement of his apartment block. It made me suspicious, so when I got home, I called the police. One hour later, police arrived at Alexei's apartment building, and when they went inside, they found the three sacks in the basement. They weighed 50 kilos each, and were full of white powder, which looked a lot like a plastic explosive. Police also found a detonator and a timing device. The timer had been set to 5.30 the next morning. Alexei's vigilance that day may have saved his life, and his neighbours too. And the reason he was so alert is because in the weeks before this, bombs had been going off in apartment buildings across Russia. The enormity of the disaster has left this bleak riverside district in a state of stunned disbelief. Just after midnight, as residents lay sleeping, an explosion sent more than 60 apartments crashing to the ground. In the three weeks before Alexei's call to the police, more than 360 people had been killed in bombings using military-grade explosives, mostly in Moscow. Emergency crews rescued more than 100 people, most from the adjoining apartments that withstood the blast. But there was little hope for those buried beneath the rubble. Russians were terrified, and they wanted to know who was behind these deadly attacks. The Federal Intelligence Service, the FSB, formerly the KGB, had an answer for them. They said it was rebels from the small southern region of Chechnya. It seemed like a logical explanation. After all, the two had history a centuries-long, often armed conflict. And just a few months earlier, Chechnya had declared victory over Russia and won partial independence. But the fifth attempted bombing, the one Alexei, the bus driver, stopped, raised some questions. For one, there's that suspicious-looking number plate made from paper, sticky tape and texter. And then there was an intercepted phone call. 
a telephone operator overheard a telephone conversation that seemed to her very suspicious. This is veteran Russia correspondent and writer David Satter, who investigated that bombing in Ryazan. The person on the line said that they've got the whole city surrounded. How do we get out of here? And the person at the other end said, split up and get out in one by one. The phone operator thought that what she was hearing was the Chechen terrorists who had tried to bomb that Riazan apartment building trying to escape. Leave Riazan separately. There are checkpoints and patrols everywhere. And I mean, anyone would have thought because everyone was thinking about terrorism. So she called the local cops and gave them the phone number of the people having the conversation. The police called the number. Turned out to be the central headquarters of the FSB. The FSB, the security service, which had blamed the other bombings on the Chechens. The cops were confused. The FSB hadn't looped them in on any operations taking place in their town. The FSB, for all their brutality, is a little short on competence. And they, they made a critical mistake. The local police tracked down the people who had been on that phone call with the FSB. Hours later, they arrest the terrorists. They produce FSB documents. Had the FSB planted what looked like bombs in Russian apartments? And if so, was this the first time? Or could they be responsible for all the bombings? What the hell was going on? The FSB had an explanation. Its director admitted to planting the bombs in Ryazan, but said they were fake. It was an exercise. There were no explosives, just sugar. And the reason that the sugar was put in the basement was to test Riazan's vigilance. The FSB said it was all a big test, which the citizens had passed, of course. A major operation involving all the members of the Russian Federation was jointly planned by the police and the FSB. The operation was codenamed Anti-Terror Whirlwind. But a lot of people didn't buy it. And some of them started to say what they really thought. People like a former FSB agent who was living in political exile in England called Alexander Litvinenko. He says, when the explosions occurred, I immediately suspected that it was the work of the organisation I used to work for. The idea that the FSB would bomb and murder their own people makes no sense. So why would Litvinenko say they had. Well, the shadowy head of the FSB at the time had recently been promoted to Prime Minister of Russia. He was absolutely unknown for Russian people uh, in 1999. Uh, we knew about him only as about the head of the FSB, former uh, KGB, and mostly people were afraid of him. Journalist Anna Politkovskaya said she thought the bombings were part of a plot to get the Prime Minister another promotion, this time to President. And who is this man suddenly thrust into the spotlight? Vladimir Putin. President Yeltsin wanted him to be elected as a president, second president of Russia. And after that, I think the Kremlin policymakers, they tried to raise a second Chechen war as the best way for election. Politkovskaya's theory was that Putin had orchestrated the attacks and then blamed Chechen rebels, the purpose being to convince Russians 
they were under attack and therefore needed a strong leader with some extra powers to take charge. It wasn't just Anna Politkovskaya who thought this. Some Russian politicians got suspicious too. We haven't had an answer yet about whether it really was a terrorist attack that was thwarted or whether it was passed off as some sort of secret service operation. It's an explosive allegation, essentially amounting to a coup plot perpetrated by the FSB, with or without Putin's knowledge, to catapult their former director into the presidency. The Kremlin vehemently denies it. And while there have been international calls for investigation, nothing was done domestically. Well, there was one attempt, but it didn't last long. A member of parliament who called for an investigation was beaten to death. Another was poisoned. The FSB people involved were either sacked, murdered or poisoned. That was enough to stop anyone else from trying to investigate. Meanwhile, Putin doubled down on blaming terrorists from Chechnya, that breakaway region in Russia's south. Russian planes are only striking the terrorist bases. We will follow the terrorists wherever they go. If they are at the airport, we will be there. Excuse me, but if they're in the toilets, we will go in there and blow them away. That's all there is to it. The problem is solved. And Putin wasn't joking. He went into Chechnya hard, with tanks and air raids. This man said that the Russian government assault on Chechnya was worse than anything he had seen before, and he'd witnessed the cruelty of the Nazis and Stalin. The Chechens fought back with terrorist attacks. Last week, 90 passengers and crew of two Tupolev jets were killed when bombs caused the planes to crash. Overnight in Moscow, a bomb went off outside a busy metro station. There were atrocities on both sides over the first four years of the conflict. Anna Politkovskaya covered the Chechen war for the independent newspaper Novaya Gazeta. All the methods uh, during this war were so bloody and so brutal. But the very worst of the atrocities happened in the Russian town of Bezlan, and it involved school children. In a developing story, more than 200 children, teachers and parents have been taken hostage in a Russian school. It was international news. The world held its breath, hoping the children would get out alive. Men and women wearing black masks and belts of explosives have threatened to blow the school up. In the initial panic, some managed to escape. But the rebels are holding hundreds of hostages, students as young as seven years old, their parents and teachers. Journalist Anna Blikovskaya wasn't just covering the attacks, she also wanted to help. Her coverage, which was critical of Putin's military tactics, had made her popular among Chechens. She thought that she could defuse the situation in Beslan and help negotiate the release of the 1,100 hostages. So she got on a plane to Beslan. Once on board, she asked for a cup of tea. I drink this cup of tea, and that's all. Where did you end up? I mean, how did you get off the plane? I returned to myself, <laughs> only in, in the hospital. Anna Polikovskaya had a sip of tea on an aeroplane bound for Beslan and woke up in a hospital in Rostov-on-Don, 600 kilometres from Beslan. She's pretty sure she was drugged. Was there any evidence that you had been drugged? It needs uh, to investigate. While Anna was out cold, Putin ended the hostage situation in Beslan 
with tanks. You can hear some gunfire now. And we can see somebody running across uh, behind there, there you as well. There are a lot of gunshots at the moment, Juanita. Sorry. Yeah. And what are the Russian... I think we have to move. I'm sorry, Juanita. All right, Emma Griffiths. All right, thank you for that. 350 hostages were killed. Beslan brought a lot of attention to the war in Chechnya. And that brought the spotlight onto Putin's critics, people like Alexander Litvinenko and Anna Politkovskaya. Their allegations that Putin was a thug and a dictator made them internationally famous. And at the time, being an internationally famous critic of Putin was becoming deadly. Why do you continue to do the job that you do when it is so dangerous? (laughs) I'm absolutely sure that uh, risk is usual part of my job, of job of Russian journalist. And... uh, I cannot uh, stop because it's my duty. After she recovered from her unfortunate tea incident, Anna Pelikovskaya went back to her career as a journalist in Moscow. This is her son, Ilya. She was very inspired that my my sister is going to have a baby. She was very, very happy. Until one autumn Saturday in 2006. I saw a lot of people in front of the entrance of the apartment building. There are several policemen uh, staying there, not letting people uh, to come in. That was the first time I felt something bad has happened. A police officer outside the apartment building approached Ilya. He said, is Anna Politkovska your mother? Uh, yeah, I said, yes, uh, what happened? And uh, he said she was uh, killed in the, uh, in the lift. She was shot dead. The Russian government said it was Chechens. Alexander Litvinenko said it was ordered by Putin. Four weeks later, Litvinenko was invited to have a cup of tea in London with some old friends from the FSB. You know how this story goes. A few days after that catch-up, Litvinenko became violently unwell and went to hospital. It turned out that his cup of tea was spiked with a radioactive element, polonium-210. All Litvinenko could do was lie in a hospital bed and wait for death. We're in the unusual position of having what you could describe as a living murder victim telling us about how it was that he came to believe that he was meeting his death. After three weeks, he died in hospital in London. We begin tonight with a story about Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian spy who died from poisoning in London on November 23rd. An inquiry into his death found that his murder was probably approved by Mr. Petruchev, then head of the FSB, and also by President Putin. With his enemies dead and his war going well, Putin was riding high. He was feeling pretty good about himself and he wanted the world to see. So he started to put himself out there, building his profile. In 2006, he released his first shirtless calendar. Vladimir Putin can ride a horse without his shirt on. He can drive a boat. He can even do the butterfly. People were into it. Putin's been snapped fishing shirtless, hunting shirtless. Oh, Putin, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Putin. While the Chechen war had gone on, high oil prices had also helped Russia's economy grow rapidly. Putin's reputation as a strong leader started to spread around the world. President Putin has achieved results 
bringing stability to Russia. Um, it was pretty much an economic basket case when he took over. It was falling apart. In 2007, he was voted Time magazine's Person of the Year. A year later, when Barack Obama was elected US president, Russian state broadcasters started comparing the two. More than 95,000 people have voted so far on whom they like best with their shirt off, Obama or Putin. And despite being nine years older, the Russian premier has taken a clear lead. And by mid-2009, a final victory against Chechen insurgents arrived. Kadyrov has welcomed the announcement by Russia's National Anti-Terrorist Committee of the end of the security operation imposed 10 years ago. But winning the war in Chechnya turned out to be a big problem for Putin. The end of the war coincided with the collapse of the Russian economy. The GFC hit and a drop in oil prices brought everything to a halt. And without a war to distract them... All Russians had to focus on was their terrible economy, their short life expectancy, their poverty and their pollution. Tough guy Putin had no enemy to fight, no threat to protect Russians from. His popularity began to dive. At this boxing match, open hostility towards Russia's most powerful man. A public first. In 2011, Putin's political party came as close as it ever has to losing its majority in the Russian parliament. It certainly is a surprising turn because many expected the ruling party here, United Russia, to do much better. Putin needed a strategy. Russia needed a threat he could protect them from. And he didn't have to look too far for a solution. It was right there on his doorstep. A new enemy for Russians to rally against. Or in fact, an old one. Western Europe. Putin hadn't always hated Western Europe. In fact, he'd previously suggested that maybe Russia could join up with the rest of the continent. You ask if it can be that one day Russia will be in some sort of joint currency zone with Europe? Yes, this is quite possible. But that was before Putin realised how desperately he needed an enemy. And in 2012, the way he talked about Europe started to change. He said Europe was losing its Christian roots. They are denying moral principles in all traditional identities, national, cultural, religious and even sexual. Portraying Europeans as sexual deviants became an obsession for him. They are implementing policies that equate large families with same-sex partnerships, belief in God with the belief in Satan. The excesses of political correctness have reached the point where people are seriously talking about registering political parties whose aim is to promote pedophilia. Putin told Russians that's what they would get if they allowed the West to influence Russia. They would be infected with Satanism, homosexuality and even pedophile political parties. And to prevent that, they would need to rally under his leadership and protection. And that's how Putin's war on the West began. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Russia If You're Listening, a podcast about Vladimir Putin's campaign to undermine and destroy Western democracies. It's produced by Ruby Jones and Will Ockenden. Archival audio was provided by the late John Spence. Next. Hey guys. Hi. Uh, We are currently in Trans... 
Transnistria. Have you ever heard of Transnistria? Country that I think very few people know about. It's very popular with YouTube and Instagram stars. Transnistria is a country that never was one. Let's just say that the Wikipedia article titled Political Status of Transnistria is rather long. They wanted to remain part of the Soviet Union. Put simply, it's getting in the way of one country getting into the European Union. And when Vladimir Putin decided to dial up his campaign against the European Union, he decided to copy and paste the Transnistrian headache into Ukraine with the help of a bikey gang. The first step in Putin's plan to find a new enemy is next on Russia If You're Listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.